As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, uh, to pray with me, Father. Now we come to the, the word of God and we pray that you would enable us to listen, to hear, to believe, and to run it through our lives, to really receive it. That we wouldn't be confused about who you are and who we are and how you work in our lives. Help us please now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel and chapter 12. I'm going to read just, I think, beginning with verse 7 till verse 15. So 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 12 and verse 7. This comes, this particular passage comes, will be recognizable in one sense to those of us who've been here in the last few weeks. Uh, It comes um, during a time when David, King David, had sinned grievously, you remember, with Bathsheba and uh, fathered a child with her, killed, had her husband killed, uh, lived in denial of that sin for quite some time. So didn't admit it until he was confronted. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And so this is Nathan after he had confronted uh, David uh, with his sin. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the uh, Ammonites. Therefore, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, And before the son. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now, the reason that I take up this particular passage this morning is that we've been working through Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's public confession and that confession he writes to help us and to help the church, if you will, throughout the ages. That confession he writes after he's confronted and embraces the reality of his sin. So after this event, David writes Psalm 51. And he writes it in such a way so that we would know how we're to think about our sin, how to feel about our sin, and what to do when confronted with our sin. 
We think about our sin as David taught us in Psalm 51, that it's ours. It's our sin. No one else's. It's our sin. And it's against God. It's a transgression against him. It violates his commands, his character, his wisdom, his love. It violates him. So it's against him. And it doesn't mean we, there isn't uh, sin against other people. But, but essentially, when we sin, it's against God because he is, in fact, king, ruler, creator, God, right? So it's against him. And, and David realized that it comes from David. That is to say, his heart, he was conceived in iniquity. That is his very nature, this sin nature that we've spiritually inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, it comes to us and we're thus inherently twisted. That is, we have a bent toward sinning, rebelling against God. So it comes from him, from his very heart, from his very nature, and that this sin is always before him. Once committed, the guilt is there. And he realizes, he thinks rightly about this, and there's really nothing he can do to atone for his sin. It's there. Nothing he can do to change his own nature. That's how he's thinking about his sin. He's feeling about his sin, helpless and hopeless. Because he realizes there's nothing he can do about it. He can't atone for it. He can't really change it. It's part of his guts, part of his very nature. And so there he is. He feels uh, guilty because he is. He feels sorrowful because he's sorry. And he, he finally gets that when confronted with this. He says, this is how we're to feel about it. We're, we're to feel guilty about it. We're to, we're to be remorseful. We're to be sorry about our sin. The kind of sorrow that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The kind of sorrow that leads to godly repentance. Not the kind of sorrow that just leads to death. The kind of sorrow that says, well, I'm really sorry. I got caught. I really love my sin. I don't want to give it up. It's the kind of sorrow that says, uh, uh, I did get caught. And I'm really sorry, not that I got caught, but because I sinned and I realized the evil of my sin. I want to get rid of that. See, that's the kind of sorrow that leads then, if you will, to repentance. He feels dirty, so he wants cleansed. He feels estranged from God, so he wants God to purge him with hyssop, that, 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 that technical kind of language of the Old Testament that means to be purified so that you can live in the presence of God. That, that's how he feels about it, you see. He, wants to, he, feels, he, he feels estranged from God, so he wants to be purified. So what are we to do with this? How we think about it, how we feel about it. Well, David went on and said, well, to confess it, to agree with God that this is wrong, to seek his forgiveness, that he would blot out his transgression, that he would wash him, that he would cleanse him, that he would hide his face from David's sins, that in in the language of the scripture, that God would remember his sins no more and and treat him not as his sins deserve. That's what David is after here. And and he appeals to God, not on the basis of anything in David. He doesn't say, I'll do this if you do that, or, or, or please, this is true of me, so surely you'll forgive me. None of that. He appeals only on the mercy of God. Mercy the kindness of God to those in misery, the kindness of God to those who can't do plead with him to help. That's why Jesus is called our faithful and merciful high priest because he came and lived and, and now he knows us. 
And the scripture says he sympathizes with our weakness. He gets it. He understands us better than we understand us. And so that when we plead to him, he understands that. And in his mercy, thus, he cannot not help. And David knew this covenant God that was the promise of God to his people. Call upon me and I will answer you. So in his misery, he calls to God. Based only on the mercy of God, he brings nothing to the table but his sin and his need. And God forgives him. And only that, he repents. He sees the, the problem with his sin and he says, on your mercy, God, forgive me. But not only that, don't leave me here. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't give me what I deserve that is cast not me away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me, sustain me with a willing spirit. He says, this is how we're to think about it. This is how we're to feel about it. This is what we're to do about it. David did all that. And you can see even here that uh, uh, Nathan uh, says, Uh, to David in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's words of forgiveness. This shall not die. Yeah, he won't die at that moment. But but it's bigger than that. God's saying, I will not condemn you. So so he's forgiven there. David understands that he's forgiven. In fact, he writes another psalm about this sin. In Psalm 32... David writes uh, this, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. That is, he's honest about his sin. For when I kept silent, that is before I made confession, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But but still that didn't cause David to repent. That didn't, didn't cause him to confess that he needed Nathan to come and push him over the edge, if you will. But then verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David knows himself to be forgiven. God will not count his sins against him. But, notice, verse 10, this is to the forgiven David. This is from the God who will remember his sins no more from the God who will not treat him as his sins deserve, from the God who will not treat him as his sins deserve. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor You shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son that is in all in public. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. 
Now, I would expect the next word out of Nathan to be, okay, then we're cool. All is well. Nothing bad's going to happen. Verse 14, nevertheless, even though you've been forgiven, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. John Calvin, in a sermon written, 450 years ago, almost to the day, August 25th, uh, 1562, um, writes, writes this. He said, now, we could find it rather strange that God pronounces the sin of David to be passed and yet punishes it. It certainly seems that this does not fit together. For if our sins are forgiven us, why does he still judge them? If a criminal is pardoned, is he told... You shall go to prison and from there to the gallows. Or your sin is pardoned, but you will be punished for it anyway. The implied answer is no, that's not what is told. And so why then, if David's sins are forgiven, why these consequences, this suffering, these hardships, this calamity that comes because of it? And, And certainly great calamity came We know that the son born to David and Bathsheba did die. We know that David's household was uh, a place of great evil. His son Amnon raped his daughter, David's daughter Amnon's half-sister. In response to that, Absalom, Tamar, the girl's brother, David's son, had Amnon, his half-brother, killed. David was in great distress. Absalom, afraid of David at that point, fled Jerusalem. So now in a sense, there were two sons of David gone, Amnon and now Absalom, who had fled. Finally, David invites Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. He does come back, but the two of them don't get together for two years. When they do, there's still no reconciliation. In fact, Absalom puts into play a plot to overtake David. He does it first by casting aspersion upon David's loyalty and love and wisdom for his people. He, he gets by the gate, Absalom does, and as the people come to bring their grievances and their issues to King David, he, he meets them at the gate and he says, oh, the king will never see you about that. Now, if I were king, I would. The king will never give you justice about that. But if I were king, I would. And so the people then begin to to grow in affection, if you will, for Absalom. And then he plays his hand. He goes down to Hebron, where David was first installed as king of Israel. And he, Absalom, declares himself to be king. Think about this. You know, this is so casual as we speak about it. This is the son of his father in public destroying him. What could be worse than that? And it's over a period of time and it's over a period of years and and, and David, here he is thinking everything is falling apart in my family and in the nation. Everything that's mine is, is now blowing up because of the sin for which I've been Forgiven. Absalom and Hebron 
gets a following. David gets afraid, so he even flees Jerusalem, thinking, I'm doomed here. Uh, Finally, uh, Absalom goes back to Jerusalem. And David as well. But as you know, this finally ends with the death of Absalom. And there's David in his tears. Absalom, Absalom, my son. See, in the meantime, even before that, what I left out of the story was after Absalom went back to Jerusalem, he took David's wives, his concubines, and he slept with them. And all the world knew more disgrace upon David. See, everything that, that Nathan had said had played itself out over a period of years. The child died. Evil was in uh, David's household. His wives were taken from him. And he was publicly humiliated as a, as a man. And, and, and not only that, but the sword never departed from his house. We saw murders and killings. And so the question being asked, if David had been forgiven, what does this really mean? Now, I think... It's really important for us to understand what it really means because if not, we'll become confused in the context of our own lives with God, especially in the life that we live. What's it mean to really be forgiven? And then why is it that we do face such consequences? We see various consequences from sin uh, even in the context uh, of the Scripture itself. For instance, in in Psalm 99, uh, we read this, verse 7. The psalmist writes of Israel... In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. He, they kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave him, gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. And you forgave them, but still, uh, when they sinned, you disciplined them. In the book of Numbers, we see this being played out. Numbers in chapter 14. This is the incident you might remember where the Israelites had, had worked their way uh, through, um, been, had been left Egypt, worked their way past the Red Sea and so forth. And Sinai were ready really to enter the land. So God sent out spies, had them send out spies. And you remember, 10 of the spies came back and says, there's no way really that we can overcome these people. We're, we're really doomed. They're bigger and stronger than us. And yet God had said, no, you can do it. Caleb and Joshua, of course, had a different report, but, but, the, but those 10 carried the day and the people had really despised, really sinned against God. So Moses intercedes for the, for the people and, and, and here's his account. Moses says, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you've promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will no, by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Moses pleads this. He says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So here's God's response. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. In other words, they're forgiven. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test in in, in, uh, uh, these times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Forgiven, but not allowed to enter the land. And we know this. 
in the course of our own lives, don't we? We know, for instance, if you've cheated on a test and you've confessed your sin and you've repented even, said, I won't do this again. I don't want to do this again. And you've been forgiven by God and perhaps even forgiven by your professor. But you know that that doesn't mean that you're going to pass the class. You still may fail. You still may then not get into the college of your choice because of the forgiven yet consequences. If you abuse your children, you may confess that before God be forgiven. Your children may forgive you. Your spouse may forgive you. But you also know that you may not be able to see your children alone unsupervised. And it may be that the relationship as it plays out never reaches that happy point it once was before the abuse took place. You know that. You know that if you've been sexually active before marriage, you may confess your sin. But that doesn't mean the STD goes away. That doesn't mean that there won't be repercussions in the course of your marriage because of that. We know that. These things keep coming up. Forgiven? Yes. By God? By the others? Yes. But still, these consequences. Uh, You may have a bad temper and unleash it. You may be forgiven by God upon your confession and repentance and forgiven even by the person you unleashed your temper on. But you realize in that relationship that you still may not be viewed as a safe person. You commit a crime. Confess, repent, be forgiven by God. Even the people against whom you've committed the crime doesn't mean you won't be sent to prison. We've even known of some who have become Christians in prison and received the forgiveness of God God, and maybe even received the forgiveness uh, from whom they've hurt but still been executed for their crime. God didn't stop Really? Husband has an affair. Doesn't mean uh, that he can't be forgiven. Forgiven by God, even forgiven by his spouse. But that doesn't mean that the covenant relationship hasn't been so broken that it may not still lead to divorce or that difficulties will be in that relationship. Employees who steal can be forgiven and fired. Ministers who engage in particular sins can be forgiven and restored to the fellowship of the church but not to their ministry. Old Scottish professor and missionary John Duncan known in his day as Rabbi Duncan because of his ministry to Israel and his teaching of Hebrew in Edinburgh once told his story about himself. He said, I grew up in the church but I went through three years of atheism as a young man. During that time, I convinced one of my students to be an atheist as well. He died in his sin. Duncan had repented even before his student had died, but he could not convince him to leave his atheism, the sin of Rabbi Duncan, as he puts it. At eternal consequences. 
for his student. Do you think surely uh, wouldn't, having been forgiven of his atheism, surely God wouldn't, wouldn't he clean his slate and everybody who had been influenced by him during that time, wouldn't they? No, no, no. There was these consequences. And so the question for us, if God, if we can give him consistency that he does forgive and, and that he is also right and good, then how do we put all these things together? Because if we don't, I think that we could easily become embittered in the context of our own lives. Now, now we have to guard against a few things. First, we have to guard against thinking that every hardship that we experience is the result of a particular sin in our lives. You wake up in the morning and you have a cold and you think, okay, what did I do for this? Right? Or the stock market goes down. You've got to be pretty paranoid to think, well, the stock market went down for everybody because I are... Your car breaks down. Now, it may break down because you've been negligent, uh, but maybe not. And it might not be any result of your particular sin. So I don't want to lay guilt nor cause us to be a paranoid people here. Every time something goes wrong, we've got to find that sin and correct it uh, or at least understand what we're going through in the midst of that. Because some of what we suffer and some of the hardships that we experience are simply because we live in a fallen world. And it could well be because of the sins of others. You might find yourself in a theater with a gunman. It might be the result simply of bad counsel that you've received and thus your life becomes more difficult. It might be because someone sins against you in a particular way and causes hardship, lies to you, gossips about you, hurts you in some way. It's also true that some of our sins leave us with no consequences at all. Some are sexually active outside of marriage and never get an STD. Some uh, have affairs and and their marriages continue on well. Uh, Some lie, never get caught. So sometimes there aren't any ramifications, it seems, at all because of our sins. So, So just keep that in your head. But here's the point of it. When we have sinned and when we have repented and confessed and received forgiveness and yet still see from that sin that there are consequences to that, how do we understand that? How do we understand then forgiveness really in the midst of that? We mustn't think that God hasn't forgiven us. We mustn't think that God requires payment from us. Because you see, forgiveness really means that the punishment that was due us has been satisfied. In, in Hebrew, Old Testament, the words to, for forgiveness uh, uh, center around uh, this notion of atonement, that payment has been made for sin. Thus, our sin then is carried away. So, so nothing needs to be paid and our sin goes far from us. The, 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 the illustration that God gave his people was on this day of atonement. Two goats, right? Two goats. One taken, killed. The blood of that goat taken by the high priest on that day into the most holy place sprinkled on the mercy seat. And what did that mean? That meant that while the people had sinned and deserved to die, that God had taken another. And the 
payment had been made. The life had been taken. The payment had been made. But then there was a second goat, as you remember. And that second goat was, a, um, was living. And the priest, high priest, would go with that goat. And he would press his hands on its head and lean against it. In, 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 in the symbol here is a transference. And this sense of transference is the guilt of the people on this goat. And what the priest would do on that day would be to make confession of the people's sins in public and transfer them to this goat. Everyone should see that. And then that goat would be led away from the people. And so you get this visual that here go my sins. (laughs) They're leaving this place. And so God said, okay, they're gone. I can live in your presence. I won't count your sins against you. Forgiveness. Now, in the New Testament, the the concept of forgiveness has behind it the words of freedom and release. That we've been freed from, released from punishment for our sins. And, And the illustration isn't an illustration at all. It's the reality of Jesus. He takes the penalty for our sins. Our sins are laid upon him, you see. The guilt of our sin laid upon him. He takes it, his blood, he dies, he rises. And when he rises, he says, your sins are forgiven. And and the proof of the forgiveness is in my resurrection. Because when I died, I paid for them. And once I paid for them, since I had no sin in myself, I was free to come back. So my life, my presence, this resurrection is the proof that your sins are gone. And and the way the the scripture puts that, we had it this morning in in our time of, of assurance after we confessed our sin from Psalm 103 for as high uh, as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Uh, that's it. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Right? It's as far as they can be. The sense is they can never be found again. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah is that God would remember our sins no more. It isn't that God forgets, because God is smart. It's simply that he doesn't remember them. When the Bible speaks of remembering, of God remembering, for instance, there are times when it says, oh, God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It isn't that he had forgotten his promise. When he remembers, it's a a clue to us That God is about to act on the promise. So when he says he remembers his promise, it means he's now going to act on the promise. So when we read that God does not remember something, it means that he's not going to act on that fact. And so when he remembers our sin no more, it means that he's not going to act on that. Forgetting is passive, right? Not remembering is active. We forget because we're not interested in something. We forget because we didn't pay attention to it. We forget because we get old. And then I can't remember the other reasons. Not remembering 
is an active name. You see, little aside, when we forgive, we often, when we forgive others, we often live under the deep and dark pain of this expression. I must forgive and forget. And we go, but I can't forget. I mean, it happened. I'm not an idiot. You know? Uh, Certain days I just remember it. I mean, there it is. I can't forget it. Well, of course you can't forget it. We don't get a lobotomy when we forgive. But we don't remember it. Meaning, when it comes to mind, we don't act on it as it deserved to be acted upon. That's what it means when we forgive. Don't live under the burden of trying to forget it, putting it out of your mind. Once you begin to try to, that, try to do that, you can't put it out of your mind. It's like trying to not think about the purple monkey kind of thing. Once you've told it, then it's there. So it's a not remembering. That's the point of it. That's what we've gotten careless when we say forgive and forget. That's what it really points to. But, but, but be more precise. If not, you'll be overly burdened. So God doesn't remember our sin. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That was the case here with, with, with David. But before I get to the... I know you're wondering, how's he going to close this? Before I get there, I just want to pause one more time and make sure we get the fact that David was forgiven he was forgiven horrendous horrific sins he was forgiven the immorality the lying the murder the covetousness the lust the despising of God went through them all and then he did which in some sense is is most despicable he never owned up to it until he was caught he never owned up to it. You know that. When, when you have to go to somebody, you go to your kid or go to your spouse or go to a friend or, or if it's a politician or a pastor and you say, you've done this and you never owned up to it. I had to bring it to you. I had to call your attention to it. The only reason you're admitting it now is because you've been caught. I mean, that's horrible. That's exactly what took place with David. He was forgiven all of that, which means every skeleton in your closet that's been confessed to God is really forgiven. Not remembered. Not acted upon by Him as it deserves. The abortion you had or encouraged someone to have that's been confessed is forgiven. That sexual immorality that led to the child that you were never ever able to raise, that sin confessed is really forgiven that lie that you told that destroyed someone's life that's been confessed repented of is really forgiven those years you wish you had back with your kid for all the things that you did or didn't do those sins confessed are really forgiven don't miss that here, David, even in the midst of 
all that broke loose in his life and family never ceased to give thanks in his prayers as we read them in the scripture that he was blessed and forgiven. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is not counted by the Lord. He knew in the midst of this even, he lived in that blessing. Know that. All right, so then why this? Why these consequences? Well, this. God deals with our sin, both as judge and father. As judge in the legal matter of our sin. Now, that's personal. Don't, don't think of it impersonal. It's still personal. But as judge in the legal matter of our sin, we stand guilty before him, condemned by him justly. As judge, through Jesus, he forgives the sins of repentant, believing sinners. Right? As judge. Why? Because the penalty's been paid. And he says, trust in Jesus. And God holds that there be no double jeopardy. Once forgiven, you're forgiven. Once pardoned, you're pardoned. Can't go back on it. Trust him, he says. Trust me. As judge, you're forgiven your sin. But he also relates to our sin as our father. And that has two aspects to it. As our father, of course, we've sinned against him. That means the relationship, the face-to-faceness, the hey, God, help me, part of it. Father in heaven, part of it. The addressing, the communion with him. When we sin, we know there's something amiss. There's something broken. Still not condemned, but we know relationally with God. So we confess our sins. He forgives. But there's another aspect to it too as our Father. He disciplines us. He wants to make sure as his forgiven children that we don't sin again. And he he wants that. Because he loves us. He knows the misery that sin causes. Thus, he disciplines. You know this if you're a parent. You know it. You can forgive your kid, child, and still spank them. You can forgive your child and still ground them. You can still forgive your child and put them in time out. You can still forgive your child and restrict certain things in their lives. Why do you do that? Well, on a good day, it's because you love them. On a good day, it's because you realize that they're still yours. They're forgiven. You're not going to treat them as their sins deserve. Kick them out. But they need to learn the implications of that life of sin. And so, we discipline. I read before our time of confession by, from Titus in chapter 2 that the grace of God has appeared to all people, bringing salvation to them, if you will. That means to all who believe that this salvation is there, it's come in Jesus, and this is grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. That word training is the same Greek word that's often translated discipline. Discipline is training. 
So grace comes to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so you see, when the grace of God comes, it brings forgiveness, yes, also brings training. And that's here what's happening in the life of David. He's being and the nation because he's a public man. And the nation is being trained not to despise the word of the Lord. Hebrews, we read about hardships I read earlier today as well. These hardships do not account for our atoning for our sin. We can't do that. We don't atone for our sin. Jesus did that. No penance is required. Confessed believers are forgiven and trained. Thus there may be out of the wisdom, or what I refer to in my own life as the wise love of God, or the wisdom of God. He knows what we need, and thus he takes us through these steps. John Calvin again, in that 450-year-old sermon, puts it like this. He says, let us therefore be satisfied that when God receives us in his mercy, it is to purge us entirely and not halfway. In regard to satisfaction, it's been made in our Lord Jesus Christ so that the pardon granted today may be free and so that we may not presume to bring in anything of our own in order to appease his wrath. Can't pay for it. Now that is what happens even though God does, in fact, chastise us just as he did David. Why? Is it that he wants to have payment? On the contrary. It's for our profit so that we may be humbled. While it is true that David was humble enough to say that he felt nothing but anguish towards God and that he hated his offenses, nevertheless, he had to be subdued even more. For even when we wish to be cleansed, we are still so full of dishonesty and wickedness that it's horrible god knows what we need to chastise us even though he had pardoned us but this chastisement is not for the past for he doesn't say you must pay for your sin but on the contrary it's for the future he informs us that we must be on our guard and learn to hate sin and to understand what it means in such a way as to make us walk more carefully that is why david was told that his child would die It was not that God had avenged himself on David and had sought payment or recompense. Like a creditor who says, if you don't pay me in gold, you must give me your wine or else bring back the merchandise. How ridiculous it would be to imagine that. But when God chastised his servant David, after having forgiven him his fault, it was to make him more watchful, to make him feel his evil more keenly and to think of it instead of forgetting it. Like all of us who so easily pardon ourselves. David would not have remembered so well the lesson which Nathan had showed him if it had not been sealed by this correction given to subdue him. That's a call only God can make. So how do we cope with this? Well, first the way David coped was he went on his knees and he prayed to God that the child's life would be spared. 
you think, why'd he do that? Didn't Nathan say the kid would die? And the answer was yes, Nathan did say the child would die. But, but, but David said in response to, to why were you praying this? He said, well, who knows? God is gracious. So there's a sense in which for all of us, when we have sinned, then we, then there's nothing wrong, if you will, for us to appeal, I presume upon, but appeal to the grace of God. I do that all the time. God, please, don't let my sin ruin my family. Don't let my sin ruin this church. Please be gracious to me. God doesn't always do that. Doesn't always keep those consequences from happening. But we can pray for ourselves and for each other that those consequences wouldn't or those consequences would be minimal. But what if they come? Well, when they come, we need to submit to them. We need to allow them to have their work in us, which means to train us of the evil of sin and cause us to hate it more, that we wouldn't succumb to it so, so easily. Maybe painful, this passage in Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But we have to keep in our mind always that uh, later, the purpose of it, is that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, this is the very love of God to us. And it shows us that we really do belong to him. I remember when I was a, a kid, when I was in the 11th grade, and I was, I was p- playing basketball for Fort Lauderdale High School, and, and uh, my, my coach's pet name for me became, uh, used to like to call me the village idiot. And, um, well, in his defense, I did once throw a pass to a referee. In my defense, he was really open. Uh had the best path to score of anybody on the, on the court at the moment. But um, I, I got a little discouraged about that. And one of the older guys came over to me and said, don't worry about that. The coach only yells at the guys on the team, the guys that are his. He doesn't yell at the guys who aren't going to make the team or whatever, He's, who aren't going to play. He, says, he only yells at the guys on the team. And I said, that's supposed to make me feel good? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes. God disciplines his own. Because he loves his own. And when we're going through these consequences because of our particular sin, we shouldn't rebel, shouldn't become bitter. But we say this means that I belong to him who is wise, who loves me. And the day will come when I'll see the fruit of this. The harvest of righteousness and peace. There are things in my life that I look back upon and still plague me and humble me. I always hate it when Karen and I are asked to talk about marriage. I mean, I don't hate it because I don't want to do it. It's important to do. It's, you know, what we do. But years two through nine for us were really bad. And I was the cause of a lot of that. And I hate to think about that. But those years are one of the reasons why I can say we're about to celebrate... 31 really good years of marriage. Well, it's been 39. But years 10 through 
39er. Really good. Because it really does the discipline of God. Forgiven, yet suffering, yield a harvest of peace. I belong to God. He will not let me alone in my sin. I belong to God. He will help me. That brings great peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious to us to forgive us. And you are gracious to us to discipline us. I pray for me, for us, that your hand would be light upon us, that your mercy would run deep, but your discipline would find its mark. Please help us, I pray. Help us to submit and not become bitter. Help us to receive and live. Pray especially, God, for those in very difficult straits, perhaps not even circumstances that are related to any of their own sin, but yet still hardships and suffering, that they would receive this as your wise, good hand upon them to teach them, and that they would respond well. Those who are suffering because of illness, those who are suffering because of relationships, those who are suffering because of mental anguish, those who are suffering because of sin. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you, parents, that there'll be a meeting in room 17 right after the service, so please make your way there. You have a couple of minutes yet to do that. I remind you, too, there'll be elders available to pray after the service down here in the front of the sanctuary, so if that's helpful to you, please Avail yourself of that. And now receive, please, this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together let us sing.